Welcome back to another episode of Outdoor Industry Executive Voices Podcast. I am your host, Tony O'Neill, and today we have a guest who truly understands the value of authentic brand storytelling and building engaged communities. Meet Christian Lepley, a marketing maven with deep roots in various sectors, including the outdoor industry, endurance sports, nutrition, and even fashion. From crafting compelling narratives for Goo Energy Labs to spearheading noteworthy footwear launches for the North Face, Christian's career is a testament to the power of a purpose-driven business model. He's got a keen eye for digital marketing, a strategic mind for go-to-market plans, and a heart that beats for the outdoors, quite literally given his love for running mountain trails and competing in races. So whether you're interested in brand development, digital strategy, or simply passionate about the outdoor industry, you're going to want to listen to this episode. Christian, welcome to the Outdoor Industry Executive Voices Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Christian, I am absolutely thrilled to have you on the show today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. So let's start where I prefer to start with every guest. And Christian, tell us about your entry point into the outdoor industry? Uh, yeah. Um, professionally, it started when I was working um, at advertising agencies, a small agency in San Francisco, and one of our clients was the North Face. And at that time, I was brought on board to manage that account and bring, bring some things to life, including their uh, up-and-coming footwear launch. And I got so deeply into it personally and professionally and realizing, oh, wow, this is an amazing category. I fell in love with them as a client. I fell in love with the category. In fact, at one point, it was hard to tell where I worked, who was, in which payroll I was on. I spent so much time at their offices at that time where it was in the Bay Area. And then eventually they moved out to Carbondale, Colorado. And I was just spending so much time with them, getting to know the product, the people, everything that they were about. That, at that point, that lit the spark when I had them as a client, did that for several years. And at, at that point, I realized that's a great industry. I need to stay attached to that industry. I didn't stay attached completely until... You know, I took, took a hiatus and did some other things. But at that point, I realized that was something I really needed to dig into deeper. Because also personally, at that time, I was heavily involved in mountaineering, climbing big peaks, doing all that stuff. So, of course, that enhanced that. And they encouraged me and, and offered up a lot of opportunities for me at the time. So, yeah, that's at the, that was the moment where I had got my true introduction to it. Interesting. So you lived in, how long did you live in Carbondale for? I didn't live there. I just spent a lot of time there okay. uh, from the Bay Area. I traveled back and forth as much as I could. I found every excuse I could to go out for meetings, hang out there, spend weekends. Uh, and I do remember at one point there was a, a team member on the North Face side. They actually asked me, do you work here or do you work at the agency? You know, and it, just because I just became so engrossed in what they were doing, I really at that point realized, boy, their inspiration for the products is where, is where marketing begins. Why are they doing these things? Not just at the finish line. Here it is. Help us position this and sell this, which is was my experience at other agencies where you're given a product launch. Here it is. You don't really fully understand why it exists, but I was so into it personally and then professionally, they were such great people to work with. And I was just inspired by the atmosphere and what they were doing that it just became natural for me to spend more time there than, you know, at my desk at the agency. You know, if I was in your shoes, I'd be trying to get out there as frequently as possible yeah. for all those reasons. Yeah, oh. not a bad gig. I mean, you know, the Bay Area, it was easy when they were in San Leandro. But then, of course, when they went out to Carbondale, that was a treat to make sure a lot of meetings were on, were on 
Fridays and Mondays. So you had the weekend, it was all those things. And they encouraged it. And my agency, they, they, they're like, great. You're, you're managing it's your thing. You know, own it. So it was, it was perfect. Interesting. Yeah. So I want to jump into a little bit of your experience um, at Goo Energy Labs. And something sure. I was thinking about prior to our show is during your time at Goo, Christian, what did you consider to be your key marketing objective or goal at that in that time period? Yeah, great question. Um, really, it was really kind of orbited around this, you know, finding that magical intersection between brand purpose and commercial success. Finding that point where those two things enhance each other, how to harmonize those two goals. That was really my main objective, uh, being head of marketing there. Because, you know, you want to grow and thrive as a company financially so you can do good things in the community. But also, Goo has such a deep, rich history and community building and authenticity. And it, it grew slowly. The, the, the founder still runs the company. It's family owned. All those things were very important. And those are the things that made it different. But also, we wanted to be financially viable and grow sustainably throughout, throughout, you know, my time there. So that's really what I worked hard on is making sure any growth initiatives that we put, put forward had that balance between brand purpose and then also achieved a commercial success that was appropriate for what we were doing. So that was really the magic of it because it would be easy to, to just, you know, create a distribution plan or encourage a distribution plan that did nothing but grow, but didn't do much for your brand purpose. So we were always, you know, teased by some of those opportunities. We always put it through that filter is, you know, first brand purpose, is it supporting that? And then does it have a commercial return for us? So it was really about doing both of those things because brand purpose and creating brand purpose or, you know, communicating brand purpose, which then drives brand desire will fuel growth. So it's not as though if you focus hundred percent of your time on brand purpose work and that kind of messaging and those kinds of campaigns, you're still supporting growth. It might not be sales today, but it certainly is revenue tomorrow because you're building that brand desire, which we all know fuels growth. So it was always about, you know, that sustainable growth, but really through that filter of purpose. So finding that, finding that harmonization was really important uh, for our team. That's very interesting. A mature company, founder-led, still, still being founder-led. Did you know that when you first walked into this role, did you know that he was going to be still very focused on brand versus and looking at brand leads to commercialization? Or is that something you came and uncovered? It's very interesting to hear a company that size really believe that the brand is where it starts. Yeah, I knew that going into it. They, they specifically brought me on board because of my storytelling background. It, I think it was actually in the job spec. We need a storyteller, a brand storyteller. And the founder owner, it's his heart that's reflected in the brand. And he was very much a storyteller and very much about the community and all that. So, no, it was a very specific, a very deliberate hire. And it was very deliberate hired me because of my background with other brands doing that, focusing on that. And then knowing that, of course, that has to turn into something because we want to stay in business mm -hmm. so we can keep supporting the community and doing all these great things. So it was, it was a very deliberate partnership between myself and, and Goo. That, that's very interesting. And the fact that Goo is still owned by the founder where, you know, Cliff, um, Power Bar, they've all sold and now are giant entities and uh, to remain still independently operating yeah. and owned. I think there's definitely something very special in that in, uh, in our industry. Yeah. Yeah. The founder, it, it's owned by the, the son of the founder and the son was there a part of it. So he's kind of, he's a co-founder. And so, yeah, that just kind of carries that family ethos, that family inspiration all the way through. And he's still very much involved um, and, and brings people on that really understand that and can, and can onboard that heart that he brings to it. 
and what we're there for. You know, it, the idea we we were there to you know to feed movement and feed that need to move, and and really was about knowing that movement, you know, is is the main ingredient for a great life. And so it was really it was more than just sports nutrition. It was about a whole about a whole ethos, a whole lifestyle. So it was important. Yeah. Yeah. Going back a little bit further into your past, you'd shared this with me a while back, but I know that you managed a significant footwear launch for the North Face in conjunction making a documentary or a film series that for NBC Sports, which supporting the brand and created really all the digital film series for another brand, which is Levi's to help announce a new product line there. This is something I, I mean, I, I'm creating content right now, so I'm very interested in, in this is what's your secret sauce or what is the secret sauce to creating a buzzworthy launch? Oh, yeah. Interesting question because, yeah, content is king now. I mean, or queen. It's just like, you know, it is, you know, is what everybody is is talking about. Um, and what what makes something buzzworthy? In some ways, we don't know. In some ways, it's magic. We don't really know. However, my philosophy, how I approach it is with content and with messaging, there's, there's feel and there's do. You know, there's a feeling that you can get from a piece of content and there's asking people to do something. And my belief is when you create, if you want to create buzzworthy content, something that's going to maybe have a life on its own, focus on the feel. What kind of, what is the feeling you want people to get from this? What is that story you're telling them? What, what do you want them to imagine? Don't sell them a product, sell them a feeling, communicate a feeling, tell a story, you know, you know, uh, fuel their imaginations with the thing. The do will come later. Um, and the do will be on their own. They'll understand that, you know, consumers and communities understand that you're a brand, understand that you're selling things and they want to know more about that, but in their own context. So buzzworthy content to me really focuses on that feeling that you're creating with the story and with what you're doing. And then also empathetic use of media, making sure that you know your community, where they consume media, how they like to consume media, because there are a lot of choices and it changes week over week, feels like. So it's really important to have empathy for the community, where they consume media, what's on their minds, and really just tell a story and, and create a feeling, create an emotion. The emotion, you know, we have as humans, we have a multitude of emotions, right? Depending on what the moon's doing, what the business is doing, what's going on with our family, right? We have all these emotions yeah. in every aspect of our life. Yeah. What emotion, when you're creating the buzz and you're getting people, you're creating the brand that gets people excited, can you narrow it down to what are, what are the top, you know, what's the top emotion or the top two emotions that as a content creator who is building a brand and telling a story, what emotions are the most powerful? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's what's on the minds of our community. There's two things, two things that I like to look at. One is, first of all, um, and I took this out of the playbook from our, from our PR partner, is look what's going on in the world. Look what's going on in the news. First of all, because you don't want to be tone deaf to things that might be happening, especially in today's world. There's so many dramatic things that impact people's perception as what, what they should be doing with their time and money and energies. So make sure you understand that so whatever it is you're doing is not tone deaf. And then it's actually data. It's information. Talk to your consumers, understand what, what moves them, what stories they want to hear, what's, what's in their hearts, what's in their minds. So it's not something that we make up in-house. It is what comes from them. So it's really a function of, function of data and it's qualitative for the most part. It doesn't have to be a lot of, you know, quantitative deep dives. It's really just 
having a relationship with your community and understanding what's important to them and what they want to hear and what's on their minds at that time of their lives. Um, and that will inform your creative brief. And then you layer on what's going on in the world, making sure that you're, you know, you're on point in terms of not, you know, being sensitive to things that might be happening. Um, and it's those two things that, that drive the, the origins of a creative brief and what the content will become and what, what it will say. Right now, there's a lot of things going on in the world. There's a lot of good things and there's also a lot of bad things. And as you create this brief to put together, when you have so many things that are going on, we'll just say right now, right? A lot going on. How do you dodge or avoid or not basically not become tone deaf when there's so many, it's almost like the old video game pitfall, right? Where you've got yeah. the guy who's running, he's got these pits, and you got to get over the pits. There's a lot of pitfalls right now. Yeah. How would you plan something at a time like today, right now? Yeah. Um, interesting question because that, that is a challenge. And I think, and we, we experienced this, I, I experienced this at Goose specifically, actually, I recall, um, pre pandemic, it was during some protests that were happening, um, and things that were going on in the communities. And it came down to us deciding what do we believe in? Cause you're not going to please everybody. You're going to, if you try to please everyone, that's the pitfall. That's the pit that you fall into is when you try to please everyone. So it comes from who are you and have the courage to be who you are. First, acknowledge if it, if it is something that just doesn't make sense to talk about right now, then you avoid it. But it's like, it is important. But we also know there's a certain segment that might not, might not appreciate what we're saying or might have a reaction to what we're saying. If it's what you believe in your heart as a brand, and if it's that kind of brand, you know, the North Face is that kind of brand, Goo is that kind of brand, these brands have a heart. Then you go with that. You go with your heart because that you can't be wrong if you are who you, just be yourself, you know, and then everything will be okay. But just be, be aware that there might be some folks out there that might not appreciate or have, have a reaction to what you're saying. But if, it, if it's true to yourself, true to the brand, then it's the right thing to do. So that is the, that's the final check. Because again, if you try to go through the process, let's avoid everything, you will make a mistake. It's not real. I love that. So follow your heart, right? Follow what your conviction is right now. And most of our convictions the reality of them is that they're maybe they're altruistic, right? You have the commercialization part of it, yeah. but as a brand in the outdoor industry and, and other industries for that matter, that if we follow what we truly believe and what's in our heart, yeah. that that's how we mitigate a significant amount of pitfalls that have over the past three years. I don't know if this is the time period we end with because we have so much access to so much content media and things yeah. are coming at us from every direction. I tend to think we really are just in a very interesting time with the pitfalls. But mm. simultaneously, I think we're in also the most amazing time ever to be alive from a technology standpoint, from the amount of resources that we have and the things that are changing so rapidly right now in fundamental businesses across the globe. And my business, your business, it's all changing fast right now. Yeah. And if we put our sales up, like, like we can catch that wind. And it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. that gets me excited like every single day. Yeah, I mean, I, I would add that. And I, I remember I've given this advice to young candidates interviewing for, for a position. They said, you know, what, what should I do? I said, just be yourself. You, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you feel in your heart, you, you know who you are and you believe in who you are and you trust yourself, it can't be wrong. If it doesn't work out for you this time, that's okay. Then it wasn't meant to be. But just be yourself. And, and it kind of frustrates me to watch the news when I see politicians that, you know, in, in, the, in the political arena, they don't do this. They're trying to navigate these these waters where there's just all of these, they feel they're predators 
be yourself. If you, if you lose your job, well, you know, you did the right thing. But, you know, so I don't see it in that arena, but in, in our world, it's really important because at the end of the day, it can't be wrong. Even if there is a bit of a, a dip after and, you, and you're feeling the pressure, you will come back because you were honest and you were true to, to your heart. And that will always win out in the end. Couldn't agree more that being authentic from the start is yeah. really what sets you in, whether it's an opportunity or a new friendship or a new romantic relationship. Yeah. That's what sets you up for long-term success, right? We can get short-term, short-term yeah. gains by, by pretending or faking it till we make it. Maybe that's not the right way to think about it, but it's being authentic, I think is absolutely critical and even more so in our industry because it really is about following your heart and authenticity and the younger generations there is no question in my mind that they can sniff out in authentic oh, yeah. authenticity faster than we ever could yeah and that that is absolutely a, that's like a paradigm shift in the world of marketing you know and there's another audience here that's really important that's vital is the internal audience the employees at the brand if they see the brand doing that then they're going to believe in in their mission and what you're and and, and why they work there and why they want to continue to work there. So I've seen it work the opposite of that, where they see you stumble as a leader or the brand stumble. And they're like, well, what, I don't like, what do we stand for? So there is that audience as well. You have your community that supports you from a, from a product standpoint and from a revenue standpoint. Then it's your, it's your, your team, your community mm -hmm. in-house. They are as important, if not more important, because without them, you, you don't exist. Without their talents and without their support and without their enthusiasm, you know, you don't have much going on. So it's really important that they see that as well. And, and, and they, they understand that you, you did what was right. We're taking some heat or maybe we're not. Maybe, we're, maybe everybody loved it. The more they see that, the stronger that community will be as well. I'm having this conversation more frequently with some of the CEOs and GMs that I'm working with about exactly that, because we all know that culture is driven top down, but it goes way deeper than that. And that leader, whether it's a leader of a team or the leader of the organization, the more real and authentic that they are, and that includes showing vulnerability, that is what energizes a team to believe in that person. And I know over my career, I've had a few different leaders that I've worked for that I would literally walk over hot coals for. And this wasn't the super polished, you only get one response, you everything is always the same in their world. They're real people that yeah. they go through, they have ups and downs, they have things that happen in their lives and they have bosses. And and that is something I think that is critical to driving a really positive, productive culture is that leader who is willing and is willing to be authentic. Yeah, it's really important for the leader also to ask ask the team, hey, here, here how do we feel about this? this thing that's happening in the world. Do we want to talk about this? Do we want to avoid this? And I, they really appreciate that because especially, you know, if, if you have a strong team, they're made up of your consumer base in some way and they're going to push back and they know what's going on out there and they know what's important. And so they're not only a teammate, they're also a consumer and they're going to have that point of view that's really strong because in the leadership position, especially, you know, you're, you're seeing things from a different view and you need them to help you stay real and stay, and stay you know, feet on the ground. And it also builds, like you said, it builds a, a, a strong um, atmosphere and culture with the team that they can trust the leader. You're in it together. We're all on the same page. And that person doesn't have all the answers. They can't. That would be disingenuous if you knew everything. Completely disingenuous. So you've got 
you've got experience on both brand side and the agency side. And yeah. that's something that I feel like a lot of times in the searches that we work on, whether it's a director of marketing or a CMO, there you kind of there's two categories, but people that have crossed into both and into, and then ultimately to the brand side, I feel like most of the time when we're on a search, our customers will want us to find someone who has brand experience, but you had the experience on the agency side, but now been involved with brands, I think longer than the agency. In your perspective, what's changed about brand development and marketing strategy over the years, and particularly in our space, in the outdoor and, and endurance sports? Yeah, I mean, I feel fortunate that I did start in the, in the agency world because it, 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 it's, it honed my craft for storytelling and understanding media. Um, and just kind of just, you know, creative briefs and things, the, the, things of that nature. I think it was really important and it was a lot of fun. Great place to work as a, as a young person to work in a, at a vibrant ad agency on a large international account. There's a lot of fun and there's a lot of opportunity. So I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, I think it was, it was a great start. But as I started to move up in my career and then started to work in house at brands, um, I did realize that there was a bit of a, you know, you don't, and in, in back when I started agencies, you kind of, you were given a brief by a client. You didn't really full, fully understand the big picture, the, maybe the, the inspiration for the product. What problem is that product solving for consumers? What job is it doing for, for the consumer? Sometimes you did and sometimes you didn't. It was kind of a hit or miss. It just really depends. But you really were in kind of a, you're in sort of a, in the dark on a lot of things um, in terms of even like things like the margin, like what does it do for the company? What's the, what's the goal for, you know, what is the real like long-term you know, prospects for this product line or this, or this new, this new product within a line, product line extension, whatever it may be. So you felt like you were in the dark. Your job was to focus on storytelling, creativity, creating a spark, creating energy, getting eyeballs, all those things. But you, there was so much that you didn't know. And so I think that's changing. And then when I, since I, when I migrated over to the brand side, I, I, because I've experienced that, I make sure that I, you know, that we inform the agency partners as much as we can about, about what we're doing, why we're doing it and, and bring them along on the journey. I think that agencies nowadays more and more are involved. And I think that's the, that's the secret sauce to being successful is really understanding what, what, why the brand is doing what it's doing. So I've had conversations with years ago. I remember with a, with another uh, sports nutrition brand, a very large one. And I asked them, why don't you hire agencies? And she had said, well, and I was at a, I was at a, uh, at one of their events, their, their employee events, and she said, look around at all of this culture. We could not find an agency that would understand this, that would be able to onboard this and get this emotion. And then I thought, well, why aren't they here? They should be here. Maybe they would. But I got her point that there's just this separation. So I think those walls are starting to, be, starting to break down because otherwise agencies cannot be successful if, they, if they're not in-house, you know, in a way, mentally and emotionally. And so I think that's, that's, that helped me understand that, you know, with my journey, but I think also it's, I think I believe it is changing because I think it has been seen that you can't keep the agency in the dark, either they're on the team or they're not. They are a member of the marketing team. They're, instead of hiring an in-house PR agency or ad agency, you are, you know, outsourcing it, but they're on the team. Mm -hmm. They're on the org mm -hmm. chart. You know, something uh, without having that, that experience myself, something that I've been curious about has been Someone in an agency that gets to work on multiple brands, say they're really cool, cool brands, very authentic or very well-known yeah. and re well-respected brands. It's not infrequent that someone from an agency will reach out to us here at Highline Outdoor Group 
and tell us that they want to get to the brand side. And I'm curious because you made you made the transition and it seems like it's been a very good transition for you and the brands that you have been part of is what is the pain that someone inside the agency is feeling because from the outside they're working with well just totally for example Oakley, North Face, Patagonia, you know you've got these brands but they want to go now and work specifically and exclusively with one brand what's the pain that they're feeling on the inside of that agency why they want to then become singular in their brand focus. Part of it is job security. Agency life is, you know, you're, you're there as long as your client is there. And so there's a lot of insecurity in terms of it, and a lot of turnover. And just and some people like that excitement because you're pitching new business, you're working on existing business, you're doing all these things. And it's great because you learn about all these industries. You, it's just a great learning, uh, learning atmosphere for a young person to, you know, because I've worked on technology, automotive, spirits, fashion, all these things within the same four walls. And so amazing opportunity. But at some point, and it's not true of everyone, but at some point you want to sink your teeth into a brand or a category and go deep on it. And, and then there is the, the, the job security part of it, where it just kind of calms down that if you're working in-house, this is where I'm working, this is what I'm doing, and you feel a sense of comfort with that. But I think the most important thing is really for myself and others that have made that transition, it's about discovering what you really love, what you really want to sink your teeth into and really get your head around. It's a category or a particular brand and going in-house allows you to do that. And so, and then when you make that transition, you realize, wow, there's so much more to this marketing pie than I, when I was studying marketing, I knew there were different pieces to that marketing pie, but I didn't really experience them. When you get in-house, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Finance, administration, manufacturing, distribution, sales, marketing, all the pieces, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, research and development, innovation, all those things, you're suddenly exposed to all that. It's exciting. You know, and you're like, oh, now. And so I think you become a better marketer. I think agencies are very smart, but they're good at that story too. And they're good at having like, you know, sort of like a different perspective. And that's great because they're not just wrapped up into one thing. They bring fresh thinking because they're not in-house. But as a, a marketing strategist or account manager, or even a creative person, at some point you just, you might get that that I want to go deep. And when you go into the brand on the brand side, you get to go deep and it's just the amount of access you have to why you're doing things is far and away more than you'll ever have at an agency. Um, but they're two different things. And it's not for everybody. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone because I think there are other sides to working in a larger organization. There's different, there's budget management. There's all these things you didn't really deal with, you know, as, as an agency person. Um, but the rewards are tremendous if you really love that category or and or love that brand. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. That ability to go deep and truly understand the business, the brand, the people in a way that yeah. I'm sure it's hard when you're the agency and whether I mean my interpretations of agencies are, is is well dated because I, I feel like I still think about Mad Men, which is one of my all time favorite series I've ever watched, and it probably wasn't good for my bourbon intake. Yeah, but um, that's my vision of it. And I, the one thing I'm, I'm curious, I don't know if there's a standard or what's the average lifespan of a client to an agency? Is there kind of that standard or how would you define? Because that you said something at the very beginning, Christian, you said job security, right? And so that means to me, there's a turnover. What is, and let's just use the outdoor industry and subjective 
I'd like to know subjectively from you, what do you think the average lifespan is in our industry of an agency with a brand? Uh, it really does vary. I mean, you'll see long-term relationships. Um, I've seen them where they, it goes on forever. Generally, that's and that you find that a lot in the, in the CPG world where there's this longstanding Procter and Gamble's with such and such agency forever. And there's been migration back and forth with team, team members back and forth, back and forth. Um, but I feel like within the outdoor industry, our industry, it feels like it's just like kind of three to four year sort of, you know, it takes a, a year or two to kind of get, get your feet on the ground and really have an impact and, and go through a couple of selling seasons and these kinds of things. So it feels like it's around that three to four year period where people start looking around and say, oh, is this working or not? So but I think I do. I do think it varies. Uh, I think it also varies upon the, the size of the of the spending, the, the media budget, all these things. Can you afford to move around? Because it's expensive for a brand to change agencies. It takes human capital and it takes actual capital to make those transitions. So it's hard to do. But it feels like that's kind of the average. But again, it really it really does vary by diet. I think out the outdoor industry seems to be seems to turn over a lot more than what I've seen in in, in CPG automotive bigger fashion. Uh, the bigger, the big brands I worked on in the fashion world, Levi's and, and Gap and the like, there was long-standing relationships. And some of that comes from the deepness of the tactical nature of those relationships when it comes to media and creative and all the parts that are associated with it. Hard to unwind that. So it takes a while for it to move on because it, it takes a long time for that thing to finally start clicking. So there's a big investment there on the, on those bigger, bigger brands, but the, Smaller outdoor brands, yeah, you can you can flip them and change them a lot easier. So yeah, I think you kind of see that every three to four years. Are these agencies that turn over three to four years, are these endemic to the outdoor and sporting goods industry? I guess my question is this, in the outdoor industry, do more brands use endemic agencies or do they use well-known, bigger, larger New York office, LA office type agencies? Yeah, endemic uh, for the most part. And I think that's a good thing. And I also think it's a bit of a, a bit of an area of opportunity as well, because that fresh perspective for, for an agency that's not endemic could work really well. The flip side of that is like my conversation I mentioned earlier with that large sports nutrition brand, they may never get the culture and the outdoor industry and its culture are specific, but it's true of automotive and true of fashion as well. But really without the passion and the people, it's hard to get it. If you're not an outdoor person, an athlete, or somehow like an adventurer or a traveler, you may never get it. Um, and so I think it's a bit of a challenge if you're a New York fashion boutique in Manhattan and you're trying to understand what a, a small in your world, you know, outdoor brand is doing and what their community is up to and what drives that community. I think it's a, it's a big lift. They can hire people in to do that, but there might always be this bit of this tension and they may cross lines that just don't make sense. So I think it's a difficult, a difficult ask, but I think there's an upside to it because I've seen the, fl- I I've also have experience where we always go with the endemic. You kind of get the same thing over and over again. There really isn't a breaking out of that mold. Um, and I think with, in today's world, especially when inclusivity and DE&I is so important that I think going outside the norm, outside endemic also could help in that area as well. But it's a challenge because the, the culture is so strong and so important and there's such a big heart in our industry that if you don't get it, you don't get it. And it's hard and it takes time and it's a lot of energy for the brand to educate an agency on that. And, you know, they don't always get it. So I think it's risky, but the reward could be there if you went outside the endemics. What about when a brand who has been using agencies, whether it's endemic or non-endemic, is there a point where a brand says, enough, we're bringing it all in-house? Does that happen? Yeah. 
Yeah, it happens. And I, and I, and I'm in favor of that in a lot of ways, um, because of what I just mentioned about the culture and the fast turn nature. If you're doing go to market strategies, things like that, it's just, sometimes it's better. We, I've had experiences where the agency, you, if it's a, if it's a medium sized agency, you're probably, if you're an outdoor brand, you're probably one of their smaller clients and how they operate, you know, they have to, their financial model is your account manager, your, your chief strategist is going to have five or six clients, three, three to five clients. You're going to get only a, a certain amount of their time on their calendar. And so if you have quick turnaround, it's difficult. And so you're always kind of the kind of waiting. And so there is, um, there is a push to do that. And I think it's a great model because of, again, because of the culture, the turnaround, the, the size of the work that we're doing, the budgets that we work with don't require, you know, out, outside creative help. Media buying, different because of that expertise. You, you know, I always recommend using a digital strategist. I think that's a different thing. But when it comes to content creation, storytelling, briefing, all those things, it can be done in-house design, you know, web, all that stuff, social media, all this stuff is, you know, moves and it goes so quickly that in-house, I believe, is the way to go when you're a small to medium-sized outdoor brand because you can really control it and you can, you always know you're, you're on point when it comes to, uh, you know, brand personality, brand hard purpose work, all that stuff is much easier. It's a, it's a much better flow. What's the structure look like if a brand is going to say, all right, we're bringing it all in-house. What are the functional areas of people that you got to bring in that gets your own internal agency start, start ready to go? Yeah. I think the, the foundational piece that I experienced is design. I think whether it's di- digital design and possibly packaging design, I think it starts there. When it comes to copywriting, I think that that my experience is that wasn't an everyday need and a lot of great brand strategists and marketers in us can also write, you know, a fair amount of copy or at least brief copy. So I believe it starts with design. So you have your social media content you have your video content, you have your website content, and you can turn that and update that and keep that rolling. So I think it starts there. Doesn't have to have a creative director level in the beginning. You can have that be managed by a really astute, smart, experienced, you know, marketing manager or marketing director. They're very good. They're, you know, I was a creative director in a lot of ways in a lot of these roles, as well as a marketing director. You kind of play that role. So I think you can, you can start there. Eventually, if you really begin to build out your portfolio of, of content, the creative director level can be important because they, they can own that. They can own that look and feel. So the managers can kind of go off and do, do the other thing they need to do. But for me, it starts with design. Um, I think technology, um, especially um, with e-commerce and our, you know, you know, web experiences and DTC are so important that technologists programming, some of that kind of those back end functions in-house would also be that second kind of pillar when you're starting out. And then as you grow, then you start to bring in that, those more senior folks. But in the beginning, I believe a strong marketing director, uh, marketing manager, along with those functional, you know, back end design, digital design, you're, you're in a good place um, in terms of your, in terms of starting out building an in-house, you know, function. That doesn't seem undoable, right? Bringing on a digital designer and yeah. did you say a front-end or back-end developer? Which is first? Uh, I would say front-end because the back-end probably doesn't come up as much. Okay. It's nice to have, but I would say front-end developer along with, uh, you know, with design capabilities. That back-end will come when you start to become more, when you're, when you're moving and you're doing more things, the back-end, but you could probably outsource that. It really just kind of depends on how big your DTC business is for you and how important your web experiences is for the brand at that time, how much focus and how many revisions and how many updates do you actually do and what kind of content you're creating. But I would start there. And then again, as you grow, eventually you bring in more of those functions. And then that senior, that senior, that senior uh, creative leadership comes sort of 
after you've established yourself and you're, and you're, you know, you have the, you're spending amount of time and resource on that level of content. That investment to me seems, seems very doable for even a small organization to really embed these individuals to understand all those parts we talked about earlier of really what drives the brand. What does the heart look like? What's the oxygen level? Um, Man, I feel like I could talk yeah. about the organizational side of this forever. Yeah. Well, and if, if I can add also the other benefit, if someone's thinking about that, the other part of that investment where you can amortize that is in-house stuff. The people, you know, people in culture department, they all, you know, there's all kinds of things that, 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 that in-house, you know, development and design can do for that organization as well. It's not all externally focused. There is a lot. So I think it is that investment makes sense when you get to that point. That's where it starts because, man, if you could turn around, like even just like the profiles for the company on places like LinkedIn and all these other, there's things that that you, that are very they're valuable to the culture and valuable, you know, for for the uh, for the brand to grow. That if you're always outsourcing those things or having it kind of done ad hoc in house by somebody who kind of knows a little bit about it, so you can amortize though that investment, that headcount investment across other departments as well. And so I think it, yeah, and I think it's it, to your point, it's a pretty reasonable investment in the beginning. It gets a little more important and a little bit more deliberate when you start to bring in creative director level. Then you have to really think about, okay, that, that, you know, because again, a really experienced, you know, marketing director, marketing manager, they, they have that in their heads in terms of the look and feel, what it's supposed to, the emotion it's supposed to, you know, communicate. So they, they can play that role for quite some time. Yeah. That's a really good point about not only does it, does this internal team then handle brand and content for the brand? You're right. There's other parts of the business that you can amortize it out. I mean, your employer brand, yeah. right? Like you said, whether it's your LinkedIn page or it's your career site or it's your culture, your mission, vision, and values yeah. page on your website, like bring all that together. So there, yeah. it's not just if you have a couple launches a year or if you're at the payroll business, you have the, four, you have the seasonal launches in this calendar. There's, there's other times that they can be applied their skill sets yeah. can be applied into building other parts of the brand, which are you know, essentially lifting it all up. Yeah, there's onboarding documents. You imagine an amazing onboarding document or brand introduction to candidates, what that would do for people and culture, for the, the recruitment process. How amazing would that be if you have a, you know, a smart designer that knows the brand, you know, does the same thing. You're selling the company to, to candidates. I mean, that's incredible. Also, sales teams, sell index to retailers, all those presentations. Um, especially in the specialty and in our, in our industry, there's a lot of work and a lot of opportunity to improve that process. And if you're using your in-house designers to do that, or, you know, or even if it's your agency, if you're still in that model, it can really amplify those presentations as well. Um, I'm laughing because that's a big piece of our process that we run in searches is developing the assets of the position profile, yeah. because what we get from our clients a job description, which is basically company, must-haves, nice-to-haves, qualifications. But what we do is we actually create that into the feel of the brand, the actual history of the brand. And we use these graphics and images from social feeds from their own website. And we build something that actually has a branded feel versus 99.9% of every job opportunity that's posted out there is literally text on a page. And it's going to say things like yeah. things that aren't even relevant. Need to lift 50 pounds. Well, some jobs that is relevant, but sure. great communicator. I, I can't, I don't think I've ever worked on a search where the person doesn't yeah, have to be. A, that wasn't important. That, that wasn't important. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. All right. So I'm going to switch, I'm going to switch gears here just a little bit because I am 
I am so interested in learning a little bit more about your background because you have two passports. You've got a U.S. passport and an Italian passport, which I think being a dual a dual citizen, a dual passport holder is like one of those life accomplishments. Um, I hope to have one of those someday. But you're a certified Neapolitan pizza chef. And I have two questions to kind of get into this. Is First, what defines a Neapolitan pizza? And then secondly, Christian, how did you get certified? Okay. Um, yeah, uh, it is true. I am a certified Neapolitan pizza chef, something they call pizza ulo. And what makes a, you know, in Italy, like in other strong food cultures, certain areas of col- the culinary world are protected and making sure they, they hold on to their heritage. And in Italy, pizza is one of them. Gelato is another one of them where there is a certain, if you're going to claim to make and take advantage of the opportunity, you know, the, the communications around a genuine Neapolitan pizza, there are certain practices and ingredients that you must use to adhere to that. And if you want to have that certification on your window in your restaurant or just claim it as a chef, you have to get certified and, and continue and remain, you know, certified and get recertified. And what's involved there is really, it's the type of oven that you use, wood burning oven at a certain degrees, 700 above. It's the kind of flour that you use milled to a certain, uh, to a certain, um, uh, texture, the type of cheese that you use, the type of ingredient, all of the, everything you do for that pizza meets a certain standard um, that has been established and been around forever. And really in a kind of orbits around Naples uh, in that part of Italy. And that's where I was born. That's where I got certified. And so it's all about that. It's just, and it's actually quite simple when you, when you learn it, um, but sticking to those principles and those, and those practices allows you to claim to be making a genuine Neapolitan pizza. Okay. So just to recap, so you got these different fundamental aspects of wood burning oven, 700 degrees or above. Uh, this was an interesting one, the flour and the mill size. So I think about coffee. If I'm pour over, yeah. here's my grind size. If I'm doing a espresso. Here's my different grind sizes, different ways I'm going to make the coffee. So sure. knowing you got these different elements what are the characteristics of the Neapolitan pizza? Like hands down, here's what they are. Well, essentially it's a, it's a thinner crust pizza, usually, you know, uh, of a, of a single size, you know, for a, an individual order to be shared, a light amount of ingredients. The dough, um, is, is kind of crispy and burnt on the outside, airy on the inside. It cooks very quickly in the oven. And it's, uh, like the, the, the classic is the margarita, which mm-hmm. is, you know, buffalo mozzarella, tomatoes, fresh basil maybe some garlic and olive oil, that's it. And it's really about the quality of the ingredients, not the quantity of ingredients. Whereas you see some of the American pizzas, it's a lot of it's the quantity, like meat lovers, all these things pile it all on there. Um, this is really about the quality of those ingredients. So it's, it's, um, uh, the, yeah, it's that crispy crust. It's a light amount of ingredients. It's natural ingredients and it cooks very quickly. It's the dough and the oven that really, I mean, cause the ingredients you can make and or buy and that's great. But you have to make that dough in that in a certain way and have it cook in a certain way to really to really sort of frame what the what the experience will be like for that pizza because that that crispiness a little bit of burnt burnt bubbles you know imperfected you know it's like imp- imperfect you know sort of oval shape um, and it's just very natural looking and cooks in just a couple of minutes in that oven and that's it and that and then you know you have a, a genuine pie. Okay. Now, 
for those who are listening to kind of help visually understand what the Neapolitan pizza looks like once it's finished, we've got a certain buffalo mozzarella. Tell me about the tomato sauce. Is it is this a cooked tomato sauce? Is it a raw? How do you make the tomato sauce? Uh, there are different recipes with the tomato sauce, but it can be it can be fresh tomatoes. It can be uh, a paste. It can be yeah. You can use fresh tomatoes, or you can use a cooked sauce with with spices and and you know made with fresh tomatoes and, and all that. So yeah. There's some variations in there, but it's really about the tomatoes, the buffalo mozzarella, and the fresh basil for that for that margarita pizza. I've gotten more interested in pizzas recently. Do you know who Dave Portney is, who does the one bite pizza reviews? Uh, yes, I have, I know the one bite pizza review. So I've started to watch them in my socials, and he goes out. Basically, Dave goes into a pizza place, whatever city he's in. So he's just got done doing Chicago. And Chicago has a unique type of pizza. Their pizza, yeah. they've got a few types. They've got a pub pizza, which is like a cracker crust. And then they've got the deep dish. Um, I'm more interested in the pub pizzas, the more thin ones. But he goes in, yeah. comes out of the pizza box, does it on camera, takes one bite, and he gives it a rating. And that ratings really can help that pizza place. They can also, yeah. I don't want to say hurt it, but maybe yeah. they're just, they're saving people from buying pizza that's subpar. He's got these different types of pizzas around the U.S. And so I think of, here's the pizzas I want to try. I want to try a New Haven pizza. I want to try a Detroit style pizza. So yeah. knowing your background in being a certified Neapolitan pizza chef, what are other styles of pizza that you've had around the U.S. that uh, that you like also? Oh, good question. Um, I, you know, I have been um, labeled as a pizza elitist, so I can be a little tough on pizzas, but I do have the ability to sort of open up my mind and say, okay, this is the experience. It's not a Neapolitan pizza. And so don't, don't, you know, expect it to be one. Um, you know, I love the New York slice. The New York slice is amazing. Um, I think that's a terrific uh, pizza experience for what it is. Just the whole, the whole atmosphere of it. And, and I don't know how they do it. I don't know. And my family, when I grew up in the, in the, in the, we had a pizzeria growing up and I worked in that kitchen. We try to do slices and I, I don't know how they do it. I don't know what, what it is that's going on there. Um, but it must be in the water in New York, but that New York Manhattan slice is one of my favorite. I, probably my second favorite style of pizza. Yeah. I, I hear yeah. the same thing. It's in the water, but then I think of what's in the pipes and I'm like, do we want to drink that water? But the pizza's yeah. different. You know, I think there's also something to the sort of aging that happens. You know, you, they, they make the pie, they slice, they put it up in the, in, in, into the, into the, the lights and ages. It's not fresh, but that's part of it. That's what it's about. That's kind of the experience, you know? And so I think that there's something about they have just perfected. And the idea that you can walk onto almost any street corner in Manhattan and get that experience, there's some of the better ones, but yeah, I think that, that, that is probably my second favorite is that, is that slice. Cool. Christian, you're curious guys. Tell me something you've learned in the past three months. Something I've learned in the past three months. Um, well, it's a really good question. I, I I think the, the, the world has been moving so fast. Um, that if we don't pay attention to everything that's happening in the world, in our personal lives and also in our professional lives, we may stumble or we may not be as empathetic as we want to be. I think you have to do your homework on not only your industry, but also in the world. That all that stuff, everything, every, it, it, we're all one planet. And so all of it is sort of a, a melting pot of information and inspirations and empathies that we need to consider in everything that we're doing in our personal lives as well as our professional lives. And I think it's never been more true than it is today. I kind of maybe always known it, but it never, I don't think it's ever been more important than it is right now. Cause it just seems like you wake up in the morning and the world is a different place. And, um, you just have to do more homework now than you ever had to in the past. I believe just on just what's going, you can't have your head in the sand and just expect to go day to day. 
and, and, and be okay. Um, you might survive, but you won't thrive. So I just feel like that's something I've learned. I got to really like, we have to really make sure that we're paying attention to everything in the world. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a good thing to have learned because in the past we could rely on, oh, here's where we get our information. And yeah. that was the information. Things are changing so fast. There's so much going on that if you just go on what you hear at the corner of your eye, yeah, you may be so off the mark. You may hurt someone with your statement or your feeling because you haven't done your homework. And that's, yeah. I, I hope the proliferation of these independent journalists continues because it's very interesting to see yeah. that shift that's happening right now. And that's where we get our content. And it's never been more prevalent over the last three and a half years now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the thing I would say to teams and, and, and folks that I work with is that, um, that when you go home at night and you're watching films content or you're reading things or you're doing things, that's your homework. It's not taking your work home from the office and doing that. It's really just paying attention and being and having a, and trying to get a deep understanding of what's happening. That's homework for the office life. And so you come in the next day, you might just have something interesting to, to dialogue with your, with your mates about, but you also might have something that could inform the work that you're doing um, as a brand or as a company or as a team. And so I feel like that's kind of the new homework is really pay attention to what, to what's going on. And it's hard because there is a lot of information. So how, you know, what's real, and what isn't is also a challenge, but I just feel like because you can wake up again and have things be so different any day of the week, we have to be paying attention. We can't just go home from the office and then that's it and shut it down and then just show up and clock in and here I am, get your brain on it. I just don't think that that's going to, that really works in the long term anymore. Yeah. I, I, I've gone through that. I wanted to shut it all out. And I did. I went on a pure, complete mainstream media. I called it a detox, but I've stopped, like literally stopped. And that's where I yeah, found yeah. more journalists and independent sources of information. But uh, t- tell me this, what Christian, right now, what are you most excited about? Well, on the professional side, what I'm most excited about is what I think is the most important thing that brands, all brands, all categories, and we're seeing it need to pay attention to for the future state. And that is, that's around sustainability, around sustainable business practices. Because I feel like we need to make sure as brands that we're not asking consumers to do more than we're willing to do as brands. You know, we're putting the onus on them to recycle and do all these things. Are we willing to also meet them halfway? And so I think it's really important, not only with the products that you're making in terms of their recycled materials or recyclability, but it's your business practices in-house your administration, your manufacturing, your R&D, marketing, live events, the amount of things and, and landfill that's created from live events. What are we doing there? How, how, you know, everything that we're, all of our functions. So I feel like that is the, that is something that I'm really excited that's becoming important. And consumers, younger consumers are demanding that of brands, that that we're, we're doing our part. I think we could always, you know, in the past, it just kind of felt like we could just kind of greenwash it and we can no longer do that. So I'm excited about that challenge and that brands are really embracing it and, re- and really trying to do that and really trying to, to make that happen. It is a big challenge because we're talking about it holistically, all the departments, how much a sales team travels, what's the carbon footprint there? What kind of stuff do you give away at an events? What kind of swag you make in? What's, what are your R&D practices? What are all those things that, that as you're doing as an organization that are also supporting what you're asking consumers to think about and do? 
that gets me excited too. I appreciate how you shared yeah. that, Christian. Um, all right. So it, as we're wrapping up now, I, I have one last question for you. And I want this, um, I want to ask you this for everyone who has made it to the end with us, who is listening to this right now. And tell me this, of all the books that you've read, what book have you recommended to people or individuals that you care about? What book have you recommended more than any other book? Oh, interesting question. Um, you know, I think for me, it's not a book. I think it's printed magazines. Okay. It's things like Adventure Journal, Like the Wind, which is a running publication that's produced out of the UK. Um, it's Monocle Magazine. These printed, these magazines that are printed, you know, like they used to be printed, the journalism, the storytelling, the texture, the, the thought that goes into when you're actually reading. I think it's, it's much more thoughtful experience for the reader. I think you get more out of it than you do through, through the digital, through the digital space. And so that's what I recommend the most to folks. If they're looking for something, bring it, bring a stack of magazines onto an airplane, bring a stack of magazines to the beach, to your, to your beach vacation or to wherever you're going to be. That's what I, I find myself recommending most because there are so many magazines out there that have survived, printed magazines survived, and they're really focusing on the content and the storytelling and the journalism uh, because they have to, and they're smaller and they're more thoughtful. And it's, you know, there's, there's not a lot of advertising and it's all, it's like a different model, um, more of a subscription model, you know, less advertising, more small and just kind of boutique. That's what I find most useful and I, that I, I feel like I'm mentioning to folks when, the, when, it, when it comes to this subject is, yeah, printed magazines. And there's a lot of them out there that they're still out there. They, they're thriving, these little publications. Okay, that's awesome. Um, tell me, tell the listeners right now the three titles of those magazines because you're giving, you obviously are someone who values storytelling and some magazines are, you know, they're thick, full of ads. Some of them are, are full of stories. So what, tell, tell, give us the list. The three that are on my mind is Adventure Journal, Like the Wind, which is a magazine about not how to run, but why you run, which is an important distinction. Um, and they do some brand partnerships with Like the Wind, um, but it's content-focused it's content partnerships. It's really thoughtful, just informative kind of journalism along with brands. And then Monocle. Monocle Magazine is a magazine that's been around for a while. It's also out of the UK. It's more of a design, kind of global business thought, thought leader type of thing. It, it's, it's really well done because it just kind of gives you a perspective. I think people in the US should read it because it gives you a global perspective on what's going on in a lot of industries, luxury, fashion, you know, automotive, sports, all the things it's printed. They, they do a lot of, um, um, sort of, ex they had like to these special edition, uh, editions of, of the magazine, little sort of, as if you're subscribed, you get these little kind of little, little bonus, uh, bonus magazines here and there. So they do a nice job. So those are the three that I frequently read along with, you know, national geographic still comes to my doorstep, you know, and that's been coming to my doorstep since I was 18 years old. So that's always a winner. Um, but they're also part of now, of course, a, a bigger, a bigger uh, thing, but those other three are the ones that I would, I would definitely Great recommend. Great recommendations. All right. So as I wrap this up, here's, a, I've got a couple of thoughts for everyone who's listening right now. And first thought is if you have not subscribed to the channel, um, it would mean the world to me if you would. It'll help the algorithm and get this quality content out to more people. And right now, more than ever, it is so important that you're kind to everyone that you interact with. But what's even more important than that is be kinder to yourself. And Christian, thank you so much for joining me today.